Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 12th of June, Tom O'Toole taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Tom took us through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Tom is one of the leaders here at Christchurch Manchester and also runs the Broadcast Network, an online training platform for church planters. Let's take a listen to the session. Hello everyone. So the way I'm going to use my time this morning is mainly on 1 Corinthians. We'll go into that letter in quite a bit of detail and then we'll do a little overview of 2 Corinthians towards the end as well so you get the feel for what's going on with both of them. I want to start though with a little bit of background just set it in in the context of the bigger bible story. So if we look at the book of Acts as you know from previous sessions the book of Acts is the story of the church fulfilling the commission that Jesus gave to the church to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well you may remember that in those early chapters of Acts it seems to have stalled in Jerusalem. They seem to be there for quite a while. Now, really, there are three things that get them moving. So firstly, persecution, as they were getting a hard time in Jerusalem and people were having to leave. They were going to different towns and villages thinking, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was a church here? And so they were preaching the gospel and starting churches in those places. Secondly, was a church in a city called Antioch that really had a heart for the nations and a missionary impulse and they catalyzed a lot of mission going out to other places and then thirdly the apostle paul so he was converted and jesus told him you will be my apostle to the gentiles and that got things moving going into other cities so and paul was sent out by the church in antioch along with barnabas and they, they went to different places and what they were finding as they were going to gentile cities and people who were not jewish were becoming Christians is there were conversations going on about how can you be a Christian who's not Jewish because the early Christians it all come out of the Old Testament heritage of the Jews and how much of that do you need to adopt in order for Christianity to to be as is there a version of Christianity that works without that well, there were different opinions and there was debate about that you could look at a letter like Galatians Paul strongly makes the case that you don't need that Jewish background to be a Christian and you shouldn't insist on someone who's a Gentile Christian adopting those things but the way they decided to resolve it was to have a big meeting and we all know meetings resolve things really well don't they so they gathered in Jerusalem Paul and Barnabas made the case for uh, anyone who becomes a Christian should not have the law imposed upon them and some made the opposite case and said no we think they should be subject to the Jewish law Peter weighed in, he talked about the vision that he'd had of God for the nations, and he was on the same side as Paul and Barnabas. It was James who was chairing the meeting, who gave the summary statement of their decision, which we find in Acts 15, verses 19 to 21. He, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So we're not insisting that they keep the law. We're not going to go down that route. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So what he's saying is, look, we're not going to impose the law on these Gentile Christians. But let's remember that we're trying to reach Jewish people. We want, uh, we want to help. We want to contextualize. We want the mission to them to go well. And if they see these new Gentile believers uh, getting involved with idol stuff, getting involved with sexual immorality or um, certain other practices, that would be really unhelpful for the mission. So let's try, if we can, to just ask these Gentiles, do us a favor, just stay away from this stuff for the sake of the mission. That was the uh, edict that they gave at this council in Jerusalem. Well, at the back of this, uh, Paul uh, goes out on more journeys. His team is now Silas and Timothy. Uh, Barnabas has gone off in a different direction. And they go to different cities in the Greek world. And one of them is Corinth. That's where we'll be focused today. And we find it in Acts 18. And when Paul gets there, he goes and stays at a house of a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. He doesn't do a lot in the early days. He sets up a business to fund his ministry. And he's reasoning once a week on the Sabbath in the synagogue. That's really all he's doing in the early days until Timothy and Silas arrive. And then there's a bit more capacity. They can start to speed things up a bit. They hire out a hall and they start to reach people. Now, they've been rejected and opposed by many of the Jews in that city. But among the Gentiles, there's a bit of a hearing. They get some people who give their life to Jesus and a church is started. Now, during this time, as they get in opposition and they're building, Paul has a dream and Jesus speaks to him and says, hey, I, I have many in this city, so don't give up what you're doing. What an encouragement a dream like that would be for Paul. But the persecution also ramps up and there comes a point that Paul has to leave. Now, by this point, a church has been started. It's quite a young, fledgling church that has got going and Paul has to leave. So even from afar, he cares for them. He's like a father figure. He wants them to do well. And so he's interacting with them through letters. Now, you might see on the notes, I've put the, the dates of what happens to give us a bit of background. So 49 AD was when this Council of Jerusalem that I talked about happened. And it was two or three years later, so 51 to 52 AD, that Paul was in Corinth ministry. When he left, he wrote them a letter. Now, this is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It's not the one in our Bible. This one hasn't been recorded yet. Uh, hasn't been recorded at all, sorry. So it's an unrecorded letter of Paul, and there was a Corinthian reply to it. So the one we call 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter to the Corinthians, but it's the first one that we have recorded. And it's part of a back and forth of a series of letters. And this was written in about 54 AD, so about uh, maybe a year or so after he left Corinth, maybe two, two to three years, actually. Um, after this letter, the Corinthians reply to him again. Now, Paul had been intending to go back to Corinth. He decided not to do so. He dodged it and he sent Timothy instead. And the reason he did that is the, the letters were getting a little bit tense, but some issues were developing between Paul and this church. And he didn't want to just turn up and make everything blow up. He wanted to get things resolved and get back on better terms with them before he visited. Well, in 55 AD, he writes them a third letter, the one that we would call 2 Corinthians, uh, and he addresses some stuff there. Now, some people think that there was another letter in between um, the one we call 1 Corinthians and the one we call 2 Corinthians. And the reason they say that is there's reference in 2 Corinthians to uh, what, what's called a severe letter that was written. Now, I think 1 Corinthians is pretty severe, to be honest. I think that's the letter that's been referred to, but others will have a different 
opinion on that. Let me also give you a little bit of background on Corinth as a city. Corinth was a, a busy city. There was a lot going on there. So population a few hundred thousand in modern day Greece. And it was on a little land bridge between Greece and Peloponnese. And what would happen is because going around the bottom around Malia in boats would be really dangerous, people would tend to go past Corinth. And there was like about a six mile land bridge and they pulled the boats over when they were trying to go from Rome to the east. So it meant there was a lot of through traffic. People were coming to the city all the time, which meant in Corinth you had access to trade, you had a lot of exotic things in this place. Also, a lot of people starting businesses, wheeling and dealing, a place of commerce. It was a, a startup city, very entrepreneurial in nature, because the Romans in 44 BC had wanted to give uh, plots of land in Italy to retired army veterans. And so they kicked other people off their land and sent them to places like Corinth. In return, they said, you're, you're free, you're free men now. So you had the, the children of this generation uh, who now be educated, they were free, they weren't tied into historical trades or working the land. So there's this question of, well, what do we do now? Creativity was happening. Lots of opportunities for business and entrepreneurship. And this mind meant it was cosmopolitan. People were drawn in from all over the place, different nationalities, languages, religious backgrounds, all were mixed up in the city of Corinth. It was a wealthy place for some, a very poor place for others. The wealth wasn't uh, distributed at all evenly. So poverty was there too quite celebrity status obsessed people wanting to be the top dog and looking for different ways to assert themselves as a big deal some through money some through knowledge public speaking skills uh, sports music arts being a patron that can sponsor those things lots of different things people would use but this desire to be well thought of to be influential to have a high status drove a lot of life in the city it was also very pluralistic so with people having moved in from all over the place they brought different gods, they brought different religions into the city. In fact, if you think of the centre of Corinth, there was a market square, and within about 150 metres of this, you'd get temples or statues to Dionysus and Artemis and Bacchus, Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, Zeus of the underworld, Zeus Most High, and the Muses. Basically, if you went to town in Corinth, you were there for shopping or idolatry. And that was about your lot. But also around the city, there were lots of uh, creative things, gyms, big sporting events, a vibrant art scene. There was loads going on. Lots of addiction as well. The newfound freedom that people have meant that people could throw off their bounds, experiment. There was lots of substance abuse, lots of alcoholism. A lot of it tied into to the cult worship that was going on there. Also very sexualized. Um, in the ancient world, to Corinthianize was used as a euphemism. For sexual immorality. Now the, the description of that city, so much of it sounds familiar for a city like mine, Manchester, but not in every detail, but I recognise so much. And that's why I love these letters, one and two Corinthians, helping working out what is it to faithfully follow Christ in a city like that. Some key themes of the letters, I mentioned there'd been a breakdown in Paul's relationship with the church. I'm talking about his apostolic authority, why he'd done the things he did, how he works and why he thinks that's the right way to work. Another big theme is what is it to be a Christian church in a pagan city? And particularly, how do they work out the practicalities of that Jerusalem accord that had been given at that Council of Jerusalem? Another theme is Christian unity, uh, gathered worship as the body of Christ, 
servant leadership, strength through weakness. These are all themes that come big in these Corinthian letters. What I'm going to do now, I'm going to get you to go into some breakout rooms. And I want you to spend 10 minutes in there. And I just want you to answer two questions. So firstly, when you think about 1 and 2 Corinthians, what's your previous experience with it? Are there any verses that uh, have stood out to you when you've read them in the past? So just a little bit on that. And then secondly, I want you to read through the first nine verses. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. And just have a think through, what is Paul's attitude towards this church? How does he feel about them from the way he introduces the letter? Ten minutes, off we go. You can tell, can't you, with breakout rooms, there are, there are some rooms where the moment Andy presses the button, everyone appears back. And they're, they're the rooms where you, you wonder, has conversation just completely run out there? There are other groups that take every second of that 60-second counter, and it's like someone's been cut off mid-sentence at the end. Just interesting. What is this letter, 1 Corinthians? So, some have characterised it as a letter of two halves. So the first six chapters, you could describe it as Paul saying some stuff that he wants to say to the church in Corinth. And then if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, he has this sentence, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's introduced some content that he wanted to address, but then he's taking some time to respond to things that were in the Corinthians letter to him. So that's one way of breaking down the letter. Another way of breaking it down is to think about it as five different big themes that are going on. So in the first four chapters, really the big theme of these chapters is the cross and Christian unity. Chapters five to seven are about the church and relationships. In chapters eight to 10, we're talking about the church and the culture. Chapters 11 to 14 are about gathered worship. And then chapter 15 is about the resurrection. And that's the framework that we're going to use for, for this session. We're going to look at each of those five blocks in turn. We're going to see what Corinthians is teaching us about it. Now, hopefully you did get a chance in your breakout room to read through those first nine verses. And if you did, you'd see the, the love that Paul has for these people, the way he values them, the way he's thankful for them, the way he sees them as complete, not lacking in any spiritual gift. And it's really important that we remember that that is the context in which Paul is writing. Even though along the way he's trying to correct them, he's trying to set them straight on things, he's not doing so as someone who doesn't like them. He's doing so as, as a father who cares for them deeply. In fact, these people that he's writing to are the very fulfillment of that dream when Jesus appeared to him, said, I have many in this city. Imagine how thrilling it was for Paul to have heard Jesus say that. And then over the months and the years, seeing those people who Jesus had been talking about one by one coming to faith, becoming this church, this worshipping community. Imagine how much that thrilled his heart, how much love he had for them. That's the context in which he's writing. But then having introduced the letter in that way, he makes an appeal to them in verse 10 of chapter 1. It's an appeal for unity. Because what had been going on, the, the presenting issue was there was some tribalism happening in this Corinthian church. They were starting to gravitate to different leaders. And you get some of them say, hey, we follow Paul. And others say, well, we follow Apollos. And we follow Peter, and we, we follow Jesus. You know, you've got these four different teams that he refers to. 
I think these teams, we can see them in the church today in different ways. Team Paul, the I follow Paul people, they were the traditionalists. They were the ones who would hark back right to when the church started. Back in Paul's day, we did things this way. When Paul was here, he said this, this is how we used to do things. We, we could be tempted to do that. I, I heard about one uh, person in the church who'd been there for decades and someone was interviewing him saying, I bet you've seen many changes in that time. And he said, yes. And I opposed every one of them. You know, that kind of person who always wants things to stay as they used to be, to go back to the good old days. And so we'll fight against anything that looks new, that looks different. That's Team Paul here in Corinth. And you've got this other team, though, because after Paul had left, another gospel minister called Apollos had turned up and by all accounts, Apollos was a bit flashier than Paul. Uh, he, he had more charisma. He was excited. He was interested. He was dynamic. And so you got some people say, oh, forget that stuffy old Paul stuff. Apollos is the real deal. He's the hot new thing. Let's be team Apollos instead. That's the future. Let's, let's lean into Apollos and his ways and his teaching. Then you've got some others who, uh, who said, actually, forget Paul, forget Apollos. We're on team Peter. Now, Peter hadn't been based in Corinth. Peter was distant. He was the, the Jerusalem authority. So these people, it's like they're trying to one-up the Paul people and the Apollos people. So, okay, you know these local leaders, fine, but we're getting our influence from the big dog from afar. This is like the, forget my local pastors. There's no one interested here in Manchester to learn from. I'm going to get all my learning from Tim Keller. Tim Keller's my pastor. Forget you guys who are here, going to the distant authority. And then you get the people who say, I followed Jesus, I follow Christ. And it sounds like that should be the right answer, doesn't it? But what they mean by it is saying, well, because I follow Jesus, I've got no need for Paul. I don't need Apollos. I don't need Peter. I've got the direct hotline. So forget all of that. I'm just going to go into my bedroom and I'm going to listen to Hillsong, and, and I've got my direct relationship with Jesus. That's church for me, because it's just me and Jesus. And, and that's the, the spirit which, with which they were bringing it. We, we follow Jesus in a way that's saying, forget Paul, forget Apollos, and forget Peter. But they've all missed the point, and Paul's trying to bring them to see that they're, they're, they're all about the same thing. What was Paul about? What was Apollos about? What was Peter about? What's Jesus about? They're all about Jesus. There is only one team. It's team Jesus. But seeing team Jesus right and understanding that that means embracing what Paul had to offer, embracing what Apollos brought, embracing Peter as well. And he says, look, was Paul crucified for you? And of course, the answer is no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, no. So he's appealing to them for unity. And then he starts to share a little bit about the purpose of ministry, about what he's been trying to do and about what Apollos was trying to do as well. And uh, let, let me read verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, remember what kind of city we're in. We're in Corinth. It's ancient Greece. The wisdom tradition, the, the rhetoric, the being able to make a strong case was highly prized. And what Paul's saying is, I'm not here to play that game. 
I'm not here to impress you with, with my words, with my way of explaining things. I've got a real simple message for you. Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. It's the gospel message that he came to proclaim. It was a context where the Greeks were looking for wisdom and the Jewish people there were looking for power. They were looking for signs. They were looking for miracles, something that could back up this idea that the Messiah was here. That's what they were after. Someone who would follow in the tradition of Moses, Joshua, Elijah from the Old Testament, the great works that were done. Paul's saying, no, what we need more than anything is a simple proclamation of the cross. And he says, look, this will sound utter foolishness to the Greeks, to people who are looking for such words of wisdom. This is going to sound absolutely mad, but this is the wisdom of God. It's a confounding wisdom, though, isn't it? And he says that this will sound like weakness to those who are after power and signs. This is going to sound like defeat. The, the one we're proclaiming didn't come in victory, but he died. He submitted himself even to death on a cross. It sounds like weakness. And yet here is the power of God at work. It's a weak power. And he says, look, even you guys, the Corinthians yourselves, aren't you the symbol of this? Aren't you the symbol of God's wisdom? Aren't you the symbol of God's power? Because look who God's chosen here. He's not chosen the strong and the wealthy and the affluent. He's chosen those who are weak. He's chosen those who seem to be nothing in the world's eyes. Doesn't that just show you what God is like? And he goes on in verse two. If, if it's not the wisdom of the Greeks or the signs that the Jews were after, then, then how do we truly understand God? He says, look, it's through the cross as the demonstration and the wisdom that is given by the Holy Spirit. You see, natural wisdom, human wisdom, the best we can do by our own efforts, that will get you nowhere. That, that's the kind of thing that led to the Lord of glory being crucified, the best of human wisdom. But there is a different wisdom, a wisdom that's given by the Spirit of God. And when you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, there's a, uh, there's a knowing of God and there's a wisdom that this world can never comprehend. That's the true wisdom he says. In chapter three, he starts to explain his own relationship with Apollos. He says, look, we are not rivals. We're not here as people fighting for your affections. We're, we're part of the same thing. He says, consider a field. I, I'm like the one who planted the seed and Apollos came along and he watered the seed. It was God who gave the growth. We're here, we're doing our bits, but this is all about a work of God. He compares it to a building as well, and each one should uh, pay attention to how they build. But remember that Paul and Apollos, they're working on the same building. It's, it's God's temple made up of these individual Corinthian believers as the bricks together forming the temple for the spirit of God. They're not rivals. Christian leaders should not be seen that way. They should not see themselves that way. We all have a part to play in helping one another to maturity. It's not about fighting for a following. It's about serving the people of God. And that's what Paul wants to make clear to them. And so in chapter four, he, he starts explaining to them what true apostolic ministry is. There's like a sense in which he's saying, you don't really get it. You don't really see what it's about. This isn't celebrity culture going after followers. This is about being servants of Jesus Christ. That's what Christian leaders are. It's about being faithful to him, not going beyond 
what is written. We've got our, our marching orders here in the word, not being puffed up. It's about being willing to suffer for the gospel and to be a spiritual father. You see, Paul, in his defense here, that there's a critique of others that have come in. Now, not people like Apollos, because Apollos has been uh, working on the same ministry and preaching the same gospel as Paul. But he is concerned about some others that have come in that he'd call the super apostles who are preaching a different gospel, who are not proclaiming Christ. We're not building the same building. We're not watering the same field. And these characters will get introduced more, particularly as we get into 2 Corinthians. We'll see some of the concerns that he has with them. So he's warning them against certain influences by showing what true apostolic ministry is like. We're united, but what we're united around is the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what Paul's wanting to make clear to them in these early chapters of 1 Corinthians. Let's do the second big block as well. Uh, and then after the, this block, or maybe even partway through it, depending on time, we'll take our first break. So the second block is about the church and relationships. And if you go to chapter five of 1 Corinthians, you'll see the first big presenting problem in relationships that Paul is wanting to address. And what you've got happening is somebody's having an affair with his father's wife. So it's believed that his father uh, would have remarried. Uh, I don't know if he'd been widowed or divorced or something like that. Uh, and this guy is then having an affair with his stepmother. And uh, Paul is concerned about this, but he's also very concerned about the response that the, the Corinthians have had to this because the Corinthians seem pretty pleased with themselves that this is going on in their church. It's like, hey, don't we just understand grace that even something like this can happen and we're okay with it? And Paul said, you've completely missed the point here. You shouldn't be proud of this. You shouldn't be pleased with this at all. This isn't a good thing to be happening in your church. You see, when Christians respond to sin, immorality, things like this, sometimes we can be caught in a bit of a dilemma. What's the right way to, to respond? Should we lead with holiness? Should we lead with this is how things should be? Or should we lead with tolerance? Should we lead with, you know, it's, it's okay, God is love, we can work this through, it's no big deal. Sometimes we don't know what to do. And the church can get a bad reputation, whichever way it goes. Sometimes if, if we lean into the holiness stuff, people will be like, oh, you guys are so judgmental, just accept everyone. And if we lean into the tolerance stuff, it's like, oh, you're so hypocritical. You know, you just let anything go in your midst. Like, what's the right way to do it? Well, in this chapter, Paul's saying within our number, within the body of Christ, there should be a high bar. This person should be given a stern warning if need be he should be removed from the church he should be removed from fellowship which would be a, a thing designed to be restorative we want him to come back to christ but we can't just create a setting where it's anything goes where living a life that's clearly not the life of christ is just oh that's absolutely fine but that's not what they were doing yet on the other hand when it comes to people outside the church they were pretty quick to judge. So in verses 9 to 12, Paul says to them, I wrote to you in my letter 
not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he would be, he would have been addressing this situation. Say, don't don't be around this guy. Don't associate with him. Put him out from your mess. They've misunderstood. They've got the wrong end of the stick. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. So they've taken this warning that's meant to be within the church. You need to have this high bar of holiness. They've taken it. Okay, we need to ring fence the church and we need to not associate with non-Christians because of their sexual practices. He says, now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What the Corinthians have been doing, maybe what many of us attempted to do as well, is within their community, they've been willing to let things slide, anything goes. And when it came to outsiders, they were harsh. They were judgmental to them. Plus, it should be the other way around. When it comes to the world, we're not to judge the world. We're to engage the world as missionaries. But when it comes to our own community, let's have a high bar for what living for God is. That was the first presenting problem going on in Corinth. The second one we find at the beginning of chapter six. And this is a lawsuit between believers. One Christian is suing another Christian in, in the courts of Corinth. And Paul, again, he wants to rebuke this. He's, he's saying, look, this isn't how it should be, that we can't keep our, our own house in order. He reminds them of the truth. Believers will be judging the angels even one day. So can't we sort these relational things out ourselves? He said, this is a big loss all round. Everyone loses when you bring this before the courts. The whole church is brought into disrepute when you're airing this dirty washing in front of the whole city. He says, here's an idea. Why not just suffer wrong? Why not just take it? The, the person who's done wrong to you, the person who's cheated you, or whatever it might be. Why not just accept that wrong? Isn't that a preferable outcome to what this is doing to the reputation of Christ? You see, the, the relationships we have in the church should be a symbol of the gospel, of the good news of Christ. And what was going on here in Corinth? It wasn't doing that. Well, then from verse 9 through to verse 20 of this chapter, Paul starts teaching them about sex and remembering the context that we've just talked about the nature of the corinthian culture it was a sex mad place and uh, what we've just read from chapter five about not being judgmental to outsiders paul's opening up what a christian's relationship with sex should be and in verses 9 to 11 here's how he puts it or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And what he's saying in those verses is that there's a Corinthian approach to this stuff 
There's a Christian approach to this stuff. And the two things don't match. The two things are at odds with one another. And uh, in particular, for, for this topic of sex, he, he covers other things as well in these verses. But he picks out three words. Uh, and the Greek words, one of them is uh, pornoi. That's the one uh, that's translated as the sexually immoral. And uh, that's where our word for pornography would come from. Literally, it means fornicators. And it's a coverall term for sexual immorality from those who are not married. And then there's the word uh, moichos, and that means adulterers. And this is a coverall word for those who are married. And then the words that were translated men who practice homosexuality, that's two words. That's malachi and arsenicotai. They come from Leviticus, and they're quite graphic words describing this practice. But you see in these words that he's chosen, Paul's painted a very broad picture of what the Corinthian approach to sex was. And he's saying, look, some, some of you guys lived this way in the past, but not anymore. Such were some of you. But now you've been brought out of the Corinthian ethic on this and you've been brought to the Christian ethic on this. He says you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. You see, the way we approach this as Christians is not the same as the world around us. But why would that be? Let me just kind of do a little detour into the book of Genesis, if that's all right, then just paint the picture of what's going on. You see, in Genesis, God created the world. And when God created and brought order, the way he did things was by making pairs of things that are similar but different. So the heavens and the earth, the night and the day, the skies above and the waters below, these things come in pairs. And the story is about these distinct but separate complementary pairs coming together. And when they come together, it brings life. When the skies above meet the waters below, that's the rains creating life, isn't it? When heaven meets earth, it creates life. Distinct pairs that bring about life. And everything is in a complementary pair, except Adam. And, and the only time in these stories we've had this rhythm of it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. The first time we get a, it is not good is when someone doesn't have a pair and that's Adam and so there needs to be a partner for you Adam and uh, the word that's described is one who's fit one who's suitable and the Hebrew word there is connecto and literally means that that literally means one who is like but opposite you so Eve was created as the one who's like him in that she's human but opposite to him in that she's female so the complementary pair is made and this is part of the whole creation pattern of these similar but distinct pairs coming together for adam and eve what this looks like is two things they're to leave their parents home and cleave to each other that's that's marriage and they're to be one flesh that's sexuality human sexuality fits in the context of marriage because it's in the context of god's creation and things being brought together and all of it all of god's creation is pointing to the union of all things in Christ. This isn't about itself. This is part of a much bigger thing. It's a trailer pointing to the ultimate glory of Christ and the church. Paul says that in Ephesians, which you'll have in a future session. But that's the whole creation purpose here. And so when Paul's teaching here on sexuality, he's doing so for a reason. He's not just kind of making up some rules for them. He's tapping into a whole stream of biblical theology here. 
And the rest of chapter six, he starts uh, explaining how this is outworked and what the, the Corinthians are to avoid. He, uh, he handles some objections that they would have. Uh, and that's a lovely passage, verses 12 to 20, just to work through things that they've probably written to him in, in kind of justifying why they'd have uh, the Corinthian sexual ethic. And Paul said, hang on a second, I'm not so sure about that, and answering their objections. Chapter seven, then, uh, he kind of outworks this in marriage and singleness. I think if we just pause here and we take a 10 minute coffee break rather than complete the, the section, then we'll pick it up in what Paul specifically says about marriage and singleness and how this fits the, the big, big biblical thread when we come back. So I, I think what I'll do, if, um, if we're all happy with this, is we, we'll do the rest of Corinthians and then we'll have a, a time for any questions that people have got. So please do feel free to chuck them in the chat if you've got them and we'll go from there. But yeah, picking up where we left off, we're in chapter seven which was the last chapter of this second section that was about relationships and paul's going to drill down specifically into marriage and singleness as as i use a question that at some point or other many people reflect on mull over for their own life is getting married the right thing to do is it something god would have them do is a life of singleness what god's calling them to and uh, paul addresses it in this chapter but let's just took a little bit of context as well because when you read the old testament often it seems that marriage and particularly having children seems to be linked in to god's covenant blessings it seems to be um, through the line that the blessing was maintained and the line seems to be really important and in the old covenant that was a key part of how things were set up but you had towards the end of the old testament in isaiah you had a couple of verses that really were starting to show that there might be something different than god's blessing happening through marriage and childbearing so one of them is isaiah chapter 54 verse 1 um this is called the song of the barren woman and it's a sing O barren one who did not bear break forth into singing and cry aloud you who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So there's kind of a reframing there, isn't there? That the way legacy, the way childhood, the way um, covenant blessing would be uh, marked would be something different than biological children. And uh, a couple of chapters later, chapter 56 of Isaiah, verses four and five, this is talking to male eunuchs says for, for thus says the lord to the eunuchs who keep my sabbaths who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant i will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters i will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off now what we find when we come into the the new testament and the new covenant we we find that things shift quite a lot from the old covenant marriage and children are no longer the hinge of God's kingdom purposes being worked out in the same way they were in the Old Testament. In fact, Barry Danilak, uh, he talks about this, and this is his quote. He says, the New Testament does not interpret the mandate given to Adam, Noah, and Jacob, so that's fill the earth, multiply. The New Testament does not interpret that as a divine imperative impingent upon all. 
nor are traditional marriage, procreation, and material prosperity explicitly associated with covenantal blessing in the New Covenant. Instead, the central message of the New Testament is in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus's primary concern in his ministry is not to provide a prescription for living well in the land, but to bestow spiritual life, a new life in the spirit that is eternal life. Such new spiritual formation is the process of becoming Jesus's disciple. Hence, though in the New Testament, we are not given any explicit mandate to marry and procreate physical human beings, we are given a new mandate to create more spiritual human beings, disciples in the form of Jesus, as we find in the words of Matthew's Great Commission. So we've seen a shift, haven't we, that disciple making is the focus now. Now, in chapter seven, Paul's reflecting, what does this mean then for, for marriage and singleness? And we can summarize his message like this. Firstly, marriage is great. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is an opportunity to live out the gospel day by day. It's a loving union. It's a physical union. It's a lifelong union. Paul has nothing bad to say about marriage at all. Secondly, singleness is great. And this is a more unusual thing to hear someone say, particularly in those days. But what Paul says is this, singleness is a gift from God and a particular kingdom opportunity. The opportunity to go about making disciples for someone who's unmarried and who doesn't have children is greater than someone who is focused on their marriage and their kids. There's more opportunity is what Paul says. Joseph Hellerman puts it this way. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 7 was not to ask how singleness fits into God's kingdom plan. Paul was addressing the issue of how marriage fits into his kingdom plan. Single people are already with the program. Verse 32, they're concerned about the things of the Lord. Married people are the ones who need help sorting out their priorities. What he's saying is both of these things are good gifts from God. And both of them are, are things that are blessed. Both of them are things that we could endorse. If you really pushed him on it, what he ends up saying is this. Then he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. I think that's quite a provocative, pastorally challenging thing to say. We don't often hear teaching like that, but that's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's move on then to block number three in this letter, and this is about the church in culture. And really what we're talking about here is making moral decisions. Now, I think there are two types of moral decisions that we need to make in life. One type is when, when the issue at stake is black and white, it's clear cut. Should I steal money from work? Should I have an affair? Things like this. These are black and white issues where the answer is pretty clear cut. No, you shouldn't do that. Yes, you should do that. And kind of whatever the issues may be. There's a second type of issue that I think are the much more challenging ones for, for us to work out, for us to navigate as Christians and to help others navigate. And that's when the, the issues are much more morally grey, where, where things aren't really obvious. You should definitely do this. You definitely shouldn't do that. A case can be made either way. And we'll call these morality in the grey areas. Here's what I want you to do, just five minutes this time. If we go back into the breakout rooms, 
could you just come up with what ideas you've experienced, either in your own life or conversations with other people, of what are some moral decisions that Christians face that are not clear cut, where it's in this kind of grey area? Just take five minutes on that, if that's okay. okay. I'm going to give you two examples of the kind of thing that I was thinking. Um, you probably came up with different ones. One example that I've had people say to me numerous times is couples who are not married who come to me and say, Tom, we're thinking about going on holiday together. What do you reckon about that? And it's a difficult question to answer without being legalistic, because there's nothing in the Bible that says you must not go on holiday if you're not married. At the same time, there's so much in it that makes me think, I'm not sure this is wise. This doesn't seem like a good idea. This is going to lead you potentially into all sorts of temptation. Have you thought it through? What's the, the room situation? Are you going as part of the group? There's all sorts of dynamics around it that nuance what the conversation is. So I, I consider that as a good example of how to make good decisions on something that there, there isn't a scripture on. It's not a clear cut black and white, but it's, a, it's in those gray areas that you're having to work through. A second example is people who ask about going to a Halloween party with their friends. Uh, now, there's not, again, there's nothing in the Bible that says, look, if what you're doing, if you break it down, is you're going to wear a, a, an Iron Man costume and you're going to go uh, to a friend's house, there'll be music playing, you'll have a couple of drinks and you'll hang out with some friends. Maybe it's even a good opportunity to build relationships and have conversations. At the same time, you think, well, what is Halloween? You know, what's that all about? Is that really something you did us? Again, there's wisdom navigating it is more helpful than a, a blanket yes or no absolute answer. It's teaching people how to think in a Christian manner about complicated decisions that they make in life and things that can be argued for and against. In chapters 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul wants to help the Corinthians think about issues like this. And there's one issue in particular that is the case study here, which is, can they eat meat that's been offered to idols? And can they go to idol festivals? Now, you might hear that and think, well, of course not. That, that's not a thing you do as a Christian. Let's just kind of hold our horses a second and talk about the argument the Corinthians would make, why there would be a case for it. Remember the background on the city of Corinth. Remember what the city is like. Within 150 metres of this central uh, square, you've got all these different temples, shrines and statues. Pretty much every week it would be the feast day to some god or other. So when Corinthian society is happening, where, where are the social engagements? It's people would go to these feasts, they'd go to the festivals, and that's where business would be done, that's where friendships would be made. And most people who were going were not going to uh, because they truly believed in the idol. They were going because that's the way society was structured. Secondly, what would happen is people who were celebrating these festivals would bring their offerings. And the offerings would be lambs, there'd be um, different kinds of meat that were offered at the shrine. So at the shrine, this priest then ends up with 500 lambs. Now he's not going to eat them all and they don't have freezers. So the way it would work is the priests then to make their money for the year, they'd take all these things that have been offered and they would take them down to the market traders and they would sell them to the market traders. And that was the, the way the economy 
work there. So then on the market stalls, what you find is like every so often this big influx of meat. You know where it's come from is it was originally offered at these idle fests, but that is the meat that you could buy. So if you wanted a community group barbecue and you go down to, to the market to buy some meat, it will have been offered at one of these idle festivals. That's just how it would have been. And uh, particularly if you were poor and you wanted to get cheaper meat, you'd wait for this day of this influx of meat, drives the prices down a bit. So the Corinthians would be saying, look, we're not trying to get involved in uh, kind of this idle meat. It's just the way life is in Corinth. Now, think back to that Jerusalem accord, that council of Jerusalem who had come together and said, look, we don't want to impose the law on Gentile Christians, but we would ask them for the sake of the Jews, don't get involved with anything that's been offered to idols. It's easy to say that when you're living in Jerusalem. It's hard to do that when you're living in Corinth, because life in Corinth is structured very differently. And so Paul is in conversation with this Corinthian church. Again, what do we do? How do we try and live out this request that's been made from Jerusalem? Is it even possible in our society? What's being asked of us here? I see in these chapters five principles that help us make such a decision. Now, the first one we find in chapter eight, verses one to six, and I call this a principle of freedom. And this is, are we allowed to do it? Is it, is it okay? And the conversation they're having, because the Corinthians have said, these idols aren't even real. They don't even exist. They're fake. So if someone offers some meat to something fake, is there really any harm in eating it? And Paul agrees, like these are not gods. There's only one God. Paul agrees on that principle that the idols aren't real. Secondly, though, verse 7 talks about the principle of conscience. What does your conscience say? Because it's all very well to say, well, the idols aren't real, so I can eat the meat. But then if something in you is, you know what, this just doesn't sit right with me. You know, you might play the, uh, the argument through on the Halloween example. So, for example, you might be going, I'm going to a party. I'm going to hang out with some friends, listen to some music, drink some drinks. Really, there's no harm done. And yet in my spirit, in my conscience, something is telling me this isn't right. You've got to listen to your conscience. Your conscience is important. It's God given. You don't want to sear your conscience. You don't want to get in the habit of ignoring your conscience. You, you need to listen and respect what, what God's telling you through that. So the principle of conscience is there. Then you've got the principle of love. And I think this is a really, really important one. And this is the, the rest of chapter eight here. And what Paul's saying is, don't just think about yourself. Don't just think about what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Think about the effects it will have on other believers and on other Christians. So if you, you, you mature ones, you leaders in the church, and you're there and you're at the, uh, the, the festival of Dionysus and you're there, and you know that Dionysus isn't real and you know you're just building a relationship with someone. But the new Christian kind of walks past and sees you in the feast hall of Dionysus and they conclude from that, oh, worshipping Dionysus and worshipping Christ, they go together. They're legit. I can do both. Think about what you're doing to them. Let's take our example uh, of my friends who are not married and they want to go on holiday together. And uh, th they say, look, we, we've got it all planned out. We'll be in separate rooms and, you know, nothing will happen. This is how we're going to avoid temptation. But then think about what happens when 
the photos from that holiday appear on Instagram. And those new Christians in your community group are saying, hey, look, these people, they're mature Christians. They went on holiday together. Oh, it's fine. We'll go on holiday together. Maybe they haven't gone through the same process of thinking about the rooms arrangements. And, stuff, and you could be leading them down a path that leads to sin. Think about the effect it will have on other people. That's the principle of love that Paul wants to teach you. In chapter 10, think about the principle of trajectory. Where is this going to lead you? Paul talks about the Israelites in the wilderness who were seduced on a path that led them away from God. If you do this thing, maybe in and of itself, it might not seem like a big deal, but is it a slippery slope? What would the next step be? And the next, where is this taking you? Is it taking you closer to Jesus? Is it taking you further away from Jesus? And then later on in chapter 10, he talks about the principle of mission. How will this play out in front of non-Christians? So it's all very well to say, don't eat anything that's been offered to idols. But what if you go around to someone's house? What if you're invited to a neighbor's for dinner and they serve you a lovely meal? Do you really need to kind of take them aside and grill them and say, hey, where did you get this meat from? What, what's the history of it? Has it ever been offered to an idol? If it has, I'm not going to eat it. Paul said, don't do that. You don't need to worry about interrogating your host. Just eat the food that they're giving you. Don't ask questions. Now, on the other hand, if they were to come out and say, hey, I've got a lovely bit of meat for you. It was offered in the, uh, the temple of Athena yesterday. At that point, because they've made a thing of it, then to say, actually, in good conscience, I'm not sure I can do that. Let me give an example today of how this plays out. I know some people who are Christians who have, I've heard a rant about how yoga is completely inappropriate for a Christian because there are roots from it that are Eastern spiritual things. And people say this doesn't match Christianity. Other people are saying, I don't know what you're talking about. It's stretching exercises. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. It's absolutely fine. I've heard both sides of that debate. I think the principle here is really great. If you want to go to a gym class with, with some friends and do the exercises and what they introduce is some stretches, I don't think you need to interrogate your gym teacher. What is the history of this exercise? What once did it mean spiritually? But if you go to the class and the gym teacher says, hey, this is a new age practice that's invoking the spirit of whatever, you might want to say, hey, I'm, I'm opting out of this. I'm not, I'm not in. You think about how it is in terms of mission. And Paul gives an example in chapter nine of his own situation where he could have been paid for ministry and yet he chose not to be. He chose to lay down something that he was entitled to for the good of other people. That's the main principle he's wanting to instill in these Corinthians. You may be allowed to eat this meat, but really it shouldn't be a question of am I allowed to do it or not allowed to do it? It should be a much broader thought process about what will be the impact on other people and how will this serve the purposes of the kingdom of God. Let's jump to the next section. So uh, chapters 11 to 14 are all about gathered worship. So when the church gathers together, there are a few issues going on when the Corinthian church gathered. Paul wanted to put them straight on it. And really the big principle that goes through all these chapters is it's about inclusion. It's about drawing people in. It's about together as a body. The Holy Spirit has a role for all of us to play when we gather. It, it was broken in a few ways. The start of chapter 11 is a passage that often uh, people get 
confused about. I think a lot of people on their reading plans jump over it and ignore it. It's a passage about head coverings. And I'll just briefly say what I think is going on there. I think this is a conversation that Paul is having with them. And like he does at many points in this letter, he will quote little snippets from what they're saying, and then he will give his response to it. And I think this passage, chapter 2 to 16, it confuses a lot of people because in the first little bit, it looks like he's saying, like, hey, if a woman's going to pray or prophesy, she has to have her head covered. And then later on, it looks like he's completely saying the opposite and undermining the argument. I think the reason he's doing that is the first bit is a little snippet from their letter where they've asserted something. And then later on, he's given his rebuttal to it. Uh, I'd invite you to maybe read and study that in your own time and see if you reach a similar interpretation. But that's how I understand that to be going on. What he's saying is don't put obstacles in the way. You don't need to do this. We want to make it easy for everyone to pray, to prophesy, to contribute, to bring what they have to bring. Second half of chapter 11, similar but different issue. This is about communion. What's happening here is they're, they're doing their service in an evening. A lot of people, uh, particularly the poorer people in the church, have been working a long day. They get there late. The rich people get there early. They do communion over a meal. The rich people have been there all afternoon. They've stuffed all the food and they've drunk all the wine. Uh, they're there kind of half-baked. Uh, these people turning up after work have got nothing to eat. And Paul's like, come on, this is a, a shared meal representing the body and blood of Christ. Don't do it in such a way and he, he's teaching them what it's actually all about and it, again it's about inclusion it's about drawing everyone into it chapter 12 he starts explaining the spiritual gifts we're one body it's not that some are more important than others we all have a valuable role to play and we, we all should be encouraged to play the role to bring what god has given us to bear and the key principle of it all in chapter 13 is love and you might have heard this chapter read at weddings pretty often. In context, it's a little bit of a rebuke. He's saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gang, gong or a clanging cymbal. Who do you think is speaking in the tongues of men and angels, but has not love? I think in Paul's eyes, a lot of the Corinthians are doing that. They're, they're focusing on using their gift to, to make themselves look good, not to serve other people. There's rivalry, there's fighting. Paul said it's not about that. Let's love one another. Let's serve one another. Let's put one another's needs above our own. In chapter 14, then, he drills down on two specific spiritual gifts that, um, that he wants to focus on for their gathered worship. I think particularly in Corinth, the gift of tongues was a bit of an issue. Now, the gift of tongues is an absolute blessing from God. But the way these guys were using it, not so much. They were using it in a way that was confusing to other people. They were dominating each other. And so he's trying to set them straight in how this gift should be used correctly. And he's trying to encourage them to, to eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, revelation from God. And, and that's what he's trying to draw them into there. And, and then at the end of the chapter, he get, kind of gives a summary of what the gathered worship should look like. Each of us bringing our gifts. There should be an order to it not a chaos so we can all contribute well chapter 15 he answers some questions about the resurrection of jesus now the first a bit of it it's particularly the resurrection of christ he makes the case for it he calls the witnesses doesn't he the people who have seen it the disciples 500 on one day paul himself 
And he builds up this case of all the people who have witnessed to the resurrection, many of them still alive at the time the Corinthians received the letter. Hey, go and ask them if you don't believe me. They saw it. They'll tell you what they saw. And then he, he links it, the resurrection of Christ, to the resurrection of believers. Because on the last day, believers will be raised in Christ. It's like he's the first fruit. He's, he's the one who started the harvest. But the harvest will come. We will all be raised in him. And if that's not the case, if, if we're not going to be raised, and Christ's not going to be raised, and resurrection doesn't happen, he says, what's the point in any of it? What's the point in Christianity? What's the point in all that I have suffered for the gospel, in all that you endure for the gospel? It would all be a waste of time. We should just jack it in if there is no future hope. That's what he's saying. And then later in that chapter, he talks about what the resurrection body will be like, the glorified, renewed body. Then he wraps up the letter with some concluding remarks. He, he wants to take an offering, particularly for the poor in Jerusalem. This was a, a mandate given to him when he went to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, to Peter and James and John, uh, and compare notes on his ministry. They, they endorsed everything that he was doing. And they said, just one thing, Paul, we want you to remember the poor. And he says, this is what I was eager to do anyway. And here he is doing it. He's collecting an offering for relief of the poor in Jerusalem. He talks to them a little bit about his plans to travel and wants to see them. Now, we, we, we said at the start when we did the timeline, he didn't end up seeing them. And then gives a few final instructions and wraps the letter up. But that's the letter of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to very briefly, like I said, I'm going to take most of my time on 1 Corinthians. I've done that. Let me just briefly talk you through what happens in 2 Corinthians as well. We'll see if there's questions, then we'll take a break and then in the final session, we'll look at sanctification. Two Corinthians, by now, the situation between Paul and this Corinthian church has got significantly worse. Now, the letter that he writes them, we can break it into three sections. So chapters two to seven, he's really defending his ministry. He's justifying a lot of what he's done. In the middle, chapters eight and nine, he really brings up this topic again of this offering that he's taken uh, and goes into a lot more detail on it. And then in chapters 10 to 13, he addresses the super apostles. These are the people who have come in and been a bit of a problem in Corinth. So as he's defending his ministry, uh, again, the Corinthians have written to him. They've raised some issues. They've got some problems with what he's been doing. Issue number one is his change of travel plans. The fact that he said he was going to come and see them and he ended up avoiding it. He explains this was for the sake of the relationship. I didn't want to blow things up with you guys. I realized it was getting a bit tense. <clears throat> so I thought I'd best not come yet, but try and get things resolved and get a good relationship restored for when I come. The second issue is, you know, that bloke who'd been having an affair with his dad's wife, the excommunicated guy. He's repented now and they want to still keep him on the outside like it's some kind of punishment. And Paul's saying, no, no, he's repented. You need to restore him in. Welcome him back into fellowship. That was the whole point of excommunicating him in the first place, that he would see the, the error of his ways, that he would turn back to the Lord. He's done it. So welcome him back in. And the third issue is a fascinating one. Um, Paul missed an opportunity to preach the gospel in uh, in Troas, I, I find this really uh, fascinating verse, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He said, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though 
a door was opened for me in the Lord. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. I, I just find it incredible that Paul turned up in this place. He saw an open door. That's what we pray for, isn't it? An open door for gospel work. And yet something in his spirit wasn't right. And that's because Titus wasn't with him. Ministry is a team thing. It's a community thing. And so Paul didn't take that opportunity. Well, then over the next few chapters, he starts to uh, explain what true apostleship should look like. And he was the example of this. He talks about the ministry. So it's to be the aroma of Christ to some, but the fragrance of death to others. There will be that side to it of opposition, of persecution, of suffering. He says, we're not just peddlers of the word. We're not going around just preaching to the highest bidders. We're doing Christ's bidding. And the evidence of that is the fruit. So they've been asking Paul for a letter of commendation to, to prove he's the real deal. He said, look, the proof is you guys. I led you, you to Christ. I started this church here. You are the evidence that God's in what I'm doing. He talks about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. I wonder if that was part of the presenting issue that these false teachers were encouraging people to go back to the old covenant. And Paul said, no, what we have here in Christ is so much better. And so he explains the glory of the gospel. So he talks about the ministry. He also talks about the ministers, the kind of people who will be doing this work. He talks about how we have treasures in jars of clay. We have an eternal hope, but to minister in the body, our frail bodies that we have, we need courage to go on and do the work of Christ in the here and now. Chapters 5 and 6, he talks about the message that is motivated by the love of Christ. And it's a message of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God and we're to reconcile with one another as well. And the methodology of it, it's about bearing hardships. And then he makes his appeal. This is his big ask. He says, I want you to widen your hearts to us. I want you to make room in your hearts for us. This is what he wants from the Corinthians. And he's received a positive report about them from Titus. Chapters 8 and 9, he makes his appeal again for, for finance for this famine relief. He talks about the example of the Macedonians and their generosity. He appeals to them to give and says, look, be ready for when I come. And let's be cheerful in our giving. Let's not do it reluctantly, but let's do it wholeheartedly. And then finally, the last three chapters, he, he talks about these super apostles who they had all the flash. They had all the kind of trappings that would impress humanly speaking. And Paul, he acknowledges in the flesh, he was nothing special. He, he'd even boast in his sufferings. He, he, he was a guy who he'd been through a lot for the gospel. He'd been through beatings. He'd been through shipwrecks. He'd, um, he'd been through all sorts of lack in his ministry. And yet he'd had some incredible revelations of God. And he talked about them as well. But he was happy to boast in his weaknesses because when he is weak, God's strength is shown. God's grace is shown all the more through his weakness. He told them what a true apostle looks like. And then at the end, he tells them, look, I am going to come and see you. I will make a third visit to Corinth. And I won't be a burden on you, but I'm worried about some who haven't repented. And he says, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to just give some careful thoughts of where you're at with the Lord before I arrive. So he was preparing them for this visit. And that's where 2 Corinthians ends. So 
We'll take a few minutes if anyone has got any questions. I find these two letters so encouraging. Um, there's a lot of reality about it, isn't there? There's a, a relationship being worked through on the go. There are difficult pastoral issues. There are, are things going on. And as we are working through things in our churches and as we're trying to wrestle with being Christians in a secular culture, and as we're trying to work these things out and work out relationships and understand it all to see, this is what it was like in New Testament times. And by the grace of God, they did. They worked it through and his gospel was proclaimed.